the last Sunday evening I was with you, we began a little series on looking together at the seven letters that Christ wrote to the churches in the book of the Revelation. So if you'd like to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Now, if you're a new Christian, you don't know where the book of Revelation is. It's the last book in the Bible. Don't start at Genesis looking for it, please. Go to the back of your Bible and Revelation is the last book there. And in that um, uh, that book, the book of the Revelation, it begins with a, a description, of course, of the resurrected Christ. We see him among the candlesticks, which represent the churches. We're comforted to know that Jesus Christ is in the midst of the church as a congregation this evening, and the church worldwide. We notice that if anyone has the right to write a letter to a church, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church, Scripture tells us. He died for the church. He is our Saviour and He's our Lord. And we did comment last time that the only person that truly knows you, truly knows me, and truly knows this church or any church is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that, beginning in chapter 2, we have a letter to the church at Ephesus. We saw last week, sadly, Ephesus had grown cold. They were described as a backslidden church. They were told to repent and do the former things. These letters are amazing. The Holy Spirit can use them in so many different ways. They can be almost a letter to a congregation such as ourselves. It can be a letter to a group of churches as they were in Asia where these letters were written. It can be for a period maybe even of church history when the church is going through suffering and it can be for different churches in different parts of the world. At the moment, the church in the UK is not suffering. Let me assure you, we are not suffering. But our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan may well be suffering. And so there are letters that will apply to them today that will not apply to us. And there are letters that will apply to us in the UK at a future date that may not apply now. And that is really the stamp of God when his word can be applied in so many different ways to so many different situations. So we're not going to repeat uh, our talk on Ephesus, but we're going to go straight together to reading chapter two about the church in Smyrna and God willing, Pergamon as well. And we're going to do two churches tonight. Then the week after next, we'll do another two, the week after another two, and then we'll be concluded by the end of the month. So we're in Revelation chapter two. I'm going to read from verse 12. To the angel at the church, sorry, to the angel at the church in Smyrna, right. Yeah, pause. I haven't got far, have I? Um, when we acknowledge that to the angel. Now, most commentators would say that was to the spiritual leader of the church. The word angel means messenger. So it may well be that what Jesus is saying to John, write to the pastor of this church. I've got something to say to him. I was only thinking down there about how many letters I get now. I get two sources for most of my letters. One is from the bank, the other is from my GP. And that's a sign I'm getting old. Um, but here are letters from the risen Christ. So let me repeat. The angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions, your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say um, they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you 
and will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. We notice that in each of these letters to the churches, there is a, a pattern. They go to a formula. When we used to write letters before emails came, it was, you know, dear sir, we put our address at the top, comma after the number. I can remember it from school and we were taught how to write a letter. And they would follow a pattern. Your name and address, top right hand corner. Then it would be dear, and then the letter at the end, faithful or sincere, depending on your relationship with the person. And John's letters, or I should say Christ's letters, follow a similar pattern. They begin always with an identification by Christ. So in this letter, he says, these are the words, sorry, of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. So before he says anything, Christ will always identify who he is. And on this occasion, he is the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end and who died and came back to life. Now that's important that that title was chosen by Christ. Uh, each of the letters have a different title, another identification mark. He's writing to a church who was suffering. He's writing to a church where martyrdom was gonna be very much part of their future. And so he comes to them straight away with his identification. I am the first and the last. The great challenge they were facing all these churches was the worship of the emperor. Emperor worship was going to be the major challenge. If you didn't worship the emperor, you would die. Very simple, you would die. And so Jesus comes in and says, I am the first and the last. Now you're gonna be asked to bow the knee to Caesar, whoever the Caesar might've been at that time. Maybe in Decletia, I'm not sure. But you know, that's the one. But let me tell you this, I, and the first and the last. And when they're challenged and when they're told, bow the knee to Caesar or else, those words may have been ringing in their ears and in their hearts, I am the first and the last. Then he continues to them uh, who was dead and has come back to life again. To this church that was about to suffer, he reminds them that he is God, not Caesar. He reminds them that he is the resurrection and the life. I was dead, I've come back to life. So please, whatever you face, whatever challenges you're gonna come up as, I want you to know that as, because I live, you shall live also, Scripture says. So the identification is not just a little throwaway. It had particular meaning for this congregation. And then he comes on with a commendation. He says that, I know your afflictions, poverty, and how you're slandered, and yet you are rich. And we'll look at that in a moment. This is the only letter he writes to the churches where there is no correction. And all the other letters, he says, I've got something, there's a problem here. There's something I want to address with you. You know, it's, this is it, but not to this church. The suffering church was not being accused of failure at any point. And you know, sometimes, you know, when we are going through suffering, we can think, oh, what is the judgment? Please, suffering is not a, a, a sign that God is against you. 
Now, there are times we go through suffering and God will come through it with us that we might learn to trust him and to be with him. But this idea, oh, I'm suffering, I must have done something wrong. Now, you might have done something wrong, but you must always assume that that is the reason. This church had done nothing wrong. And yet it tells us there that Satan was going to test them, but they would come through. And he said at the end of it, uh, the promise is, I will give you a crown of life. Be faithful to the point of death and I'll give you a crown of life. And then we have that lovely phrase, to him that overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So judgment is not going to be part of their future. Now, Smyrna was an interesting city. Again, on an evening, we won't have time to go into all the background and details, but um, it was a very important, it was a, a wealthy city. Um, they, it was the place where worshipping the emperor began. The city decided to worship the emperor, make it a centre for worshipping the emperor because it would get them favour and Caesar would smile and hopefully the city would be secure. But in doing that, Jesus comes to them and says these fabulous words, I know. Several times he says that, I know. When you are suffering, there's nothing worse than no one knows. Now I have a way of letting everybody know when I'm suffering. Oh, I've got a bad knee at the moment. Did you not know? I mention it everywhere. If you've not heard about my, have you heard about my bad knee, Scott? Have you, are you, com, you feel compassionate? You do. Yeah, I believe that, you know. But, you know, oh, I'm just going to ban you. Oh, please feel sorry for Gordon. It's not that bad, right? But, you know, we tend to know. And it's terrible. And this church is suffering. And maybe they're thinking, does anybody know what we're going? Does anybody know what's going to happen to us? And Jesus says, I know. What a saviour. He knows. He knows what you're going through. He knows your troubles. And whatever generation, whatever part of church history, God has always known what's going on in his church because he's walking amongst the candlesticks. He's taking the patient's temperature regularly. He knows what we are going through. He says, I know. What does he know? He says, first of all, he says, I know your afflictions. He knew the problems they had and the challenges. I know your poverty because of Christ. I know that they are slandering you. And there was a lot of accusations against the church that through the communion service, that they were, they were actually practicing cannibalism, which was not true, but there were a lot of slanders against them. The Jews would say terrible things to discredit them because they didn't want the gospel of Christ to spread. He says, I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. He knows and if this letter says nothing to us tonight other than this, whatever you may be going through, Jesus knows. You might think no one knows. There are some things we go through we can't tell anyone. Heartaches that no one else can know. You can't even share them because you just don't want other people to have the same heartache. But let me tell you, he knows. He knows your poverty. He knows your afflictions. He knows those who may slander you. He warns them that some will be put into prison, even to the point of death. And they're told there to be faithful unto death. If that's what's required, be faithful unto death. I understand that Polycarp, one of the early martyrs, lost his life there. One commentator says that the Jews broke the Sabbath. They might collect wood for be part of his execution. You know, he served Christ 86 years. And when challenged, 
Would he deny Christ? He said, I have served Christ 86 years. Christ has never denied me. Why should I deny him? And then he lost his life. So in this church in Smyrna, challenges, persecution. Dare I say, there are nations around our world today where our brothers and sisters are going through persecution, may well be losing their lives this day because they will not bow to the Caesar or wherever that is. And the scripture would often talk about the devil and the throne of Satan. And I will deal with that in just a moment. And it's all coming back to this denial of who Christ is and his rightful place of worship. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Why? Why should they not be afraid? I'd be afraid. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison. Suffer 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death. Why? Why should we not be afraid? Because he makes a promise. When it's over, I will give you what? A new car? No, no. I will give you a crown of life. You are going to come through this. Now, every Christian has eternal life. It is the gift of God. Simple, the gift of God. We receive that when we give our lives to Christ. We repent of our sins. He forgives us. We receive the gift of eternal life. But you see, it's not just life they receive. It's a crown of life. Again, another commentator says that's similar to the Olympics when they wouldn't give them a gold medal, as we've seen in the Olympics recently, but they would get a, a laurel wreath crown marking them out as being victors, marking them out as being achievers. And Christ is saying, you're going to go through it. I know it. It's terrible, but I understand. But when it's over, do you know what? I know what your head measurement is. And I've got a crown of life just waiting for you. They had life already in Christ, but they were going to have a crown of life. My pastor only had one pastor, which is a, a great joy to me because I couldn't compare him with anybody else, used to say, live your Christian life so you can walk into heaven as if you own it. Well, I don't know, I've never achieved that, but it's a similar vein here. Suffer now, crown. Suffering, crown. It was the pattern of Christ. He suffered, he was crucified, he rose again, and now he is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And where's that as the hymn writer says, that royal diadem upon his head. Well, what a thought. And then he comes to them and he says, to he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. That is at the end of each of these epistles that he writes, each of these letters. To him who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, this isn't just an, an ordinary letter. This is a letter with a spiritual implication. And it will need, it was written by the Spirit of God, it needs to be listened to by the Spirit of God. I'm sure there were people in this church who thought, well, what's this all about? But some of them understood that it was God's way of saying, suffering is coming, but I will know about it and I will be with you. And when it's over, there will be a crown of life for you. And those who overcome, we're told, will not be hurt by the second death. The second death, of course, is judgment. The judgment, the great white throne of God. There will be some of you, and no doubt there are preachers in Nashville listening to me now who may not agree. But as far as I'm concerned, this is speaking about the great white throne judgment, which the Christian is exempt from because we have had our sins forgiven 
and we are one with Christ. So that's the church at Smyrna. If, if, if the church at Ephesus was backslidden, then the church at Smyrna was the suffering church. We move on to the third church, the church at Pergamon. Let me read to you, if I may, please. Verse 12 of chapter 2. To the angel at the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the day of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. The people who are holding the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come soon and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To him who overcomes, I will give some hidden manna. I'll also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So we now come to the church at um, Pergamon. Again, very interesting, these words. I'll try to do it justice. Let me just follow through on the pattern. Let's just see the pattern. First of all, Christ's identification. When he comes to them, he identifies himself clearly. These are the words of him, pardon me, sorry. Uh, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Okay, so he's now identifying himself with the picture we find in Revelation 1 verse 16. So he comes with the word of God. So to the, to the suffering church, he's the first and the last and the resurrection. To this church, he's coming because he has challenges with them. He comes with the sword of his mouth. Now that is the word of God a two-edged sword dividing marrow and bone. It's, it's, it, there are many other scriptures who will lead us to that. So that's his identification. The word of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Again, taken from Revelation 1.16 and also other scriptures as well. Well, he comes with a commendation. He says, I know where you live. Well, that's not strange. I think on the email that went out about Sunday, I put that down as a title. I'm not very good on titles. I know where you live. I live in Derby in the Midlands. I won't give you the rest of the address in case you want to send the bailiffs round, you know, but I know where you live. Now, why was he saying that? What's the point? What's it? I mean, you know, I sometimes say to people, do you, at the door, do you live nearby or do you travel far in? And it's a courteous thing. But Jesus wasn't inquiring, where do you live? He said, I know where you live. Now, that was important because they lived in a Terrible, terrible place. It was a city that I will describe in a moment. It was a terrible place to live. And before Jesus says anything to them, he says, listen, I know what you're up against. I know where you live. So if you live in Derby, you'll know that our football team doesn't, isn't doing very well at the moment. So if you're a football supporter, it's uh, you know, not a good place to live. I don't know where it is at the moment, but there we have it. And he's saying to them, look, I know where you live. Whatever I'm saying now, whatever commendation I give you, whatever criticisms I have, 
Don't turn around and say to me, you don't know what we're up against. He knows what we're up against. And he says, I know, I know that area. I know exactly the challenges that you are facing. The commendation, commendation, pardon me, I know where you live. And then he says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. In fact, they had a martyr called Antipas, the first mention of a martyr in these letters. So he's saying good things to them. He's coming to them and saying, these are the words, I know where you live. And where does that say? And then his correction is, but I have a few things against you. You see, just because they were in a difficult place didn't mean to say that that excused everything. He said, well, Gordon, if you know what I went through, I said, excuse me, there are certain things I can't excuse. So if you said to me, Gordon, I'm, I'm a bank robber and I don't want to stop. And I say, well, you must stop because the Bible says thou shalt not steal. And you said to me, how, but if you knew how broke I was. Well, all I can say to you is it doesn't matter. Thou shalt not steal. And he comes in and in spite of the terrible place where they live and the pressures they were under, there were certain things he was unhappy about what was in, what was in the church. Terrible English that, isn't it? I know English is a second language for many of you, but let me tell you now, that was terrible English. You know, and he comes and says, look, I know where you live. I understand the pressures you're under. I know the challenges you're facing. But I've got to tell you, there's some things happening in this church I'm not happy about. Correction. And then he gives them some instructions. Of course, Smyrna did not have any of these because they had no correction at all. And he comes in with the word repent. Repent. I won't finish the verse because that'll take away from what I'm going to say next. He said, repent. Repentance, you know, is the answer to most of the challenges we face. So, you have an unforgiving spirit. Do you know what I'd say? If you say, well, can I have counselling? I've got an unforgiving spirit. If I'm tired, I might just turn around and say, do you know what? Why don't you repent of that? You know, well, I'm facing a challenge. Well, first of all, why don't you repent? Why don't you say to God, I'm sorry for that, that attitude, that behaviour. And let's start there. Because so often it's after repentance that is the beginning of our journey to freedom and restoration. So I can hold your hand, which I don't do, and say there, there, there. That's not what's happening. We don't comfort you in your sin. We say, repent. Say to God, I'm sorry for that attitude. I'm sorry for that behaviour. And in that act of repentance, which means to turn around, I can't do that too well with my knee. Have I mentioned I've got a bad knee? No, I just wanted to check I had. You know, turning around and going the other way. And as we repent and we turn around and we go the other way, 90% of the problems are behind us. That's what the great thing about repentance. When you turn around, the problem is behind you and you have a future with God in front of you. And then the instructions to repent and then the promises. I'm going to leave the promise to the end, but it's quite, I find it quite fascinating. Okay, so let's have a little look at this. These are the words of him with a sharp double-edged sword. I am watching the clock where Satan has his throne. So he acknowledges that, now please, Satan did not have his literal throne there. You know, there wasn't a throne. In fact, there was a throne of Satan in Pergamon. And I found this interesting that German um, engineers removed it 
And it's now in a, Ber in a, a museum in Berlin called the Pergamon Museum. Now, if I got that wrong, you'll have to forgive me, but that was a quick sketch reading about this. So it literally was a place. And to cut a long story short, before we get into all the Satan business, let me just tell you now, it was emperor worship. You see, the challenge is this. It doesn't matter who we worship. If it's not Christ, it's wrong. Now you can like your football team and love your grandkids and all these things. There are loads of things. But when it comes to worship, that is Christ alone. And Jesus says, I know where you live. I know the problems you're facing. I know that Satan is there. There is this throne where you have to go and worship and it's all evil. Yet you remain true to my name. Wow. You did not renounce your faith in me. Marvellous. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in the city where Satan lives. Now, please, Satan didn't, doesn't live somewhere. Forgive me. I'm not being flippant. He ain't got a postcode you know, or for our American friend, zip code. He hasn't got one. He is, he is out and about causing bother everywhere. Let me assure you of that. But what the Lord is saying, I know the challenge you face. You are particularly marked out for a challenge. It's as if Satan himself is there. And of course, Satan was motivating this and encouraging it and going with it. I mean, our emperor worship was, if that, that was an idea of Satan, I mean, imagine that. The sum of the Caesars are that daft. They actually thought they were gods. Imagine that. And people, so they would save their lives or keep the economy of their city going, said, you know what? We better start worshipping this Caesar because if we don't, he's going to cut off our funding. I know it sounds, you might not agree, but as I read it, that seems to be what they sell out to. And may I just say this? Don't sell out to anything, will you please? Don't bow the knee to anybody but Jesus. You remain true. You did not renounce it in the days of Antipas. Then he says, nevertheless, I have something against you. Well, I find that not difficult because it's what Christ said. He's saying, you did not renounce your faith. You've been a faithful witness. You remain true to my name. I go, well done, lads. But because we are strong in one area, doesn't mean to say Christ is unhappy with other areas. You know, and it's the whole, well, I go to church every week. Well done. But what's your heart like? Well, I sing in the worship team. Well, yeah, great. But what's your heart like? You know, I preach. Yeah, but God said, well, so what, Gordon? What's your heart like? And so because they were faithful and true, it didn't mean to say there was not something. And it was very simple what the problem was um, in that area. Um, they remained true to his name. There was, well, I think we're going to call it heretics. There was false teaching in the church. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people who are holding the teacher of Balaam. Well, very basically, Balaam, he, was, he sought to lead the children of Israel apart. It says there, who, uh, Balak enticed the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols. Doesn't apply to the Christians, but by committing sexual immorality. And then he goes on to the Nicolaeans, who we had mentioned earlier. And again, these were two groups who wanted to be Christians, but wanted to live their lives as they weren't Christians. Okay? And my wife always makes the remark that, why is it that we never have to plant weeds? She says regularly, she does the garden. I do, I cut the grass, but that's about it really. 
You know, but you know, she said, you never have to plant weeds. They're up weeding and they're there. And it's the same with sin. The, the drift of the, of the heart is this, that we can drift in that way. And it wasn't so much that the Christians were doing this, but they had allowed these people in the church. Now, I've got to say, I think that is the fault of the leadership of these churches. The leadership of this church should have thrown these boys out. Oh, that's not very Christian, Gordon. I've thrown people out of church. Oh, what? I could keep you here all night. Some of the stories you'd laugh at, some of the stories you'd cry at. It's times I've stopped. I've said, this is not the church for you. Bye. Goodbye. Ta-da. And the next week they turned up again and they had some of the big lads on the door and they weren't coming in. You know, you think, oh, Gordon, aren't you glad I'm not your pastor? And you're glad. But you see, these people were in the church. They were alongside the church. There was like, uh, you know, they had this teaching. They said, well, you know, you can still worship the Lord, you know, pay your tithes and then be immoral. You can't. It doesn't work. We have to be a moral people. We're to be true and honest. Of course, we fail at times, but this is not to be done there. And then likewise, you have those who hold the teaching of the naked. Repent, therefore. In other words, it's wrong. Back to the Corinthian church, where there was immorality in the church. Paul's complaint to the leaders was, it wasn't that there was sin in the church. There's always going to be sin in the church because there's human beings. But they did nothing about it. And I've got to say, and I certainly know I have nothing to gain by saying this, this church, and I assume every other Elam church, have sought to the best of our ability to be true to Scripture. Does that mean that we're infallible? Of course not. But we have standards. We have roots. Sadly, Elam ministers can be dismissed. Sadly, as a regional superintendent, I stood down several ministers whose life did not match the calling that they claim to have. Even within this church, if we find that your life is such that it is incompatible with the Christian life, then we certainly won't be offering you membership. We certainly won't be offering you leadership because these things are not to be named amongst us. Well, enough on that. Then he says, otherwise. So he doesn't say repent. He says, otherwise I will uh, come to you I will soon come to you and fight them with the sword of my mouth. He says, if you won't sort them out, I will. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I'd rather, if I was a church leader, get on and sort the problem out myself than have the Lord turn up and sort it out. But that's how important it was. If you don't deal with this, I will. This is how important it is. You think, oh, it does, you know, doctrine really doesn't matter. It's not that important. It is important. The trouble is we don't always agree on how wide doctrine should be, the truths are. There are lots of things that probably Pastor Colin and I may not agree on, but they're not the fundamentals of the faith. You know, he may believe this and I might believe that, but we believe that Christ is Lord. We believe this is God's word. We believe Christ is coming again. We, 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 these are the fundamentals and we're together in that. And maybe he's wrong on a few things but he'll know when he gets to heaven. No, no, it's probably me who's wrong. Have I mentioned my knee? Okay, moving on, moving on. Nearly finished. Well, I think, okay. 
Then he says to him that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not everybody's going to catch this one, he says. You've got to be spiritual to understand what I mean. But he says, to him who overcomes, I will give some hidden manna. Wow, there's some food. Manna, of course, was from the Old Testament. You know, in the wilderness, they received manna. It wasn't hidden. And then, of course, Christ said, I am the bread of life. So again, that wasn't hidden. He was available and could be seen by all. But now we have this hidden manner. And then he says, I will give him a white stone. I, I enjoyed looking at this because I really didn't have notes on this. I found it quite interesting to, to, uh, to look at this, a white stone. Now, there were different occasions when the white stone was used. Um, obviously, we have it in the Old Testament um, with the high priest, stones, etc. but we'll put them on the side. Very often, if you were on jury duty, you would be given a black stone and a white stone. And you would have to put, if you thought the guy was innocent, you'd put your white stone in. If you thought he was guilty, you'd put the black stone in. So there are many times when this stone was used. And can I find my notes on this? That's the trouble with having too many notes. The, the stone was used. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is this. I'm going to give you a white stone. You're innocent. To him that hears, if you repent, if you put things right, to him that overcomes will be given a white stone. No guilt, freedom in Christ. I've never been on trial in a court of law, um, but I wonder, it must be such a relief. And the jury comes back and says, not guilty. Wow, what a relief. And hopefully you're not guilty, by the way. What a relief to know that Jesus can hand you the white stone. There are other connotations that time won't allow me to look at. He said, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, who known only to him who receives it. So you're going to get the not guilty from Christ. Something to look forward to. I want to get to heaven. I'm going to say, hey, what's my white stone? And I'm handed a white stone. That's if I'm an overcomer. And there's a name. God has a name for me. I, you know, I don't know what it'll be. He who has a bad knee. No, I, I, have I mentioned that? You know, but you know, no, I don't know what it will be. But I know this. He's given that name to me. I have a middle name. I have, I, I'm, my name is Gordon Howard Neal. Neil is obviously my name from my father's family. My mother and father were from Southern Ireland. Neil, N-E-A-L-E. -E. And my first name was Gordon because I was born in Scotland. And my mum thought it would be nice if I had a sort of Scottish sounding name, Gordon. But I've got a middle name, Howard. Now, when I first saw Gordon H. Neil, I thought it stood for handsome. But I've later been told, mainly by my wife, that it doesn't mean that. It's the name Howard. And I asked my mother once, why did you call me Howard? I understood the Gordon because we were in Scotland and we come over from Ireland. She thought it would probably sound a bit Scottish, help us assimilate, you know. And she said, oh, you're called Howard because my mother's family were uh, not wealthy, but they were quite well to do. And my mother went to a boarding school when she was little, but she was deaf as well. 
So I've got certain thoughts about that, which I won't share, but she went to this boarding. And in this boarding school, there was an older boy who looked after her. There was no romance. He was just like a big brother. Probably he showed her around and looked after her and was nice to her because of her hearing challenges. And my mother said that when, if she ever had a son, she'd call him Howard after the kindness that this Howard showed to her. And I think that's lovely. And every time I put Gordon HD, I have to remind myself, am I as kind as the person I was named after? Am I as caring as he was to a little girl who maybe shouldn't have been in a boarding school? Anyway, that's another story. But she was, and she was there. The name comes there. Now, that's the story of my name. Gordon, because of Scotland. Howard, because of this boy. Neil, because that's the father's name, obviously, in that way. But what name will he write on your stone? Oh, hang on. First of all, you've got to be a Christian to get the white stone. If you're not a Christian, you're still guilty. So what do you mean I'm guilty? I'm sorry. If you've not given your life to Christ and ask him to forgive you your sins, then you're still responsible for them. That's the great thing about Christ. When we give our lives to him and we repent and we ask him to forgive us our sins, he does. They're not our responsibility anymore. They're his responsibility. And he took our punishment on the cross. So that's why I will have a white stone. Not because I'm better than you, I've just been forgiven. Not because I'm holier than you, hopefully I'm trying to behave myself, but no, it's because he died for me and cleansed me from my sins. And so I've got a white stone. The only thing is this, what name will he put upon it? I don't know, but like all preachers, I'm gonna have a guess. Will he put faithful? Will he put um, prayerful? I don't know. Christian friend, overcome. Don't bow the knee to Satan. Stay faithful, stay true. God knows where you live. He knows the challenges. He knows what you're going through. And whether you're in Smyrna or Pergamon, he knows, he cares. And he's got a stone waiting to give you that says, not guilty. Why are you not guilty? You say, well, I have done bad. No, no, you're not guilty because he paid the price.